Hey cockroaches, it's Bess here. I'm really excited to welcome you to this week's cockroach relief special. I've got an interview that I recorded several weeks ago with one of my favourite Melbourne comedians. I'll leave it to the two of us to introduce ourselves at the beginning of the interview. But for now, I invite you to sit back, relax, put your troubles aside and enjoy this cockroach relief special. Lay down the burden of your heart I know you'll never miss it <laughs> It's too heavy! It's too heavy! Put it down! Here! Here! It's lighter when you let go, isn't it? <laughs> Because everything about the health world is annoying to me. All the food, everything's like kale and keto and kombucha. A lot of Ks. I see three Ks in a row, I'm like, nah, I'm out. <laughs> something unsettling about it for me. Cockroaches, welcome to Cockroach Relief. We are fortunate today to be joined by comedian, actor, podcaster, Logie winner, and all-around funny guy, Dilruk Jayasinghe. Welcome, Dilruk. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, feel honoured to be among this many cockroaches at one given time. I mean, <laughs> it is, feels like a post-apocalyptic world that we're living in, so I feel like cockroaches being the only survivors of most nuclear attacks, I think uh, this feels nice to be part of the survivors. Yeah, and you're in Melbourne at the moment, so you're mm-hmm. experiencing yet another extended <laughs> lockdown. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And with uh, with the harder bit of pill to swallow, which is not quite sure if there's an end in sight at this moment, uh, yeah. we're recording, I suppose, if this is not throwing continuity out, we're recording at the end of July and rates per day is uh, my least fun activity to look up. So I've actually decided to start, you know, pardon the pun, quarantining my news, where I will quickly just look at the stats overnight and see if there's any changes to the rules about uh, going out, and then I'm done with the news. I can't deal with it. I have decided it's just too much. So my parents live in Sri Lanka. My brother lives in India. So I look at those stats a little bit as well just to see how they're going. But that after that, I'm just back on YouTube watching, uh, you know, um, watch mojo lists and things like that. Just in- <laughs> I think that's really a really healthy way to deal with it, actually. I was meant to move to London in April. Mm. and when things were really starting to kick off, I, for some reason, thought that being as informed as possible about the situation in Melbourne and the situation in London was the way that was going to somehow change things. So mm. I was just like obsessively reading everything that I could and like minute by minute updates, like updating the Guardian app on mm. the coronavirus section and making myself crazy. So I've sort of taken the angle that you have just said as well and I'm trying to not obsess yeah it makes sense though for you to do what you did because the world started feeling so out of control that uh you want to start feeling that some things are in control and you know the less more informed you are the more you feel like you might have a better grasp of what's happening but the reality is it's such a huge issue and so far removed from anything within our actual control that I started to realize oh there's nothing I can do about it and all Mm -hmm all it's going to do is just stress me out even more. So yeah. I've just had to start, you know, p- pick and choosing when I engage with that, that that narrative about what's happening with the world. Because even my family WhatsApp group, we have one that is just, you know, for the last five, six years. And then I created a new WhatsApp group just for the virus updates because I was like, I don't want any information about what's happening in the world that is negative to sort of soil seeing 
you know, pictures of my niece every morning. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I'm like, let's yeah. keep this nice and clean for happiness and the other one for inf information because information is necessary. It's just that the information is a bit painful at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that leads in nicely to the first thing I was going to ask you. Is there anything in particular that is helping you cope with this lockdown? I mean, it's it's a really weird and probably fairly shitty time for people in the, you know, performing arts mm -hmm. who are, you know, gigs have been cancelled, the comedy festival was cancelled, things that had been planned for many months in advance have come undone. Mm -hmm. What are you doing, A, to keep busy and B, to, I guess, you know, you're someone that's talked about mental health a lot. Mm -hmm. What are you doing to look after yourself and keep busy during this time? I uh, I have to do a whole varying, like a whole bunch of things. I realise it's not the one thing that, you know, helps me through it. Uh, but also I've learned since lockdown part one, as we call it here in Melbourne, uh, mm. is that I can tick all the boxes off and still feel like crap. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I think the lesson I've taken into lockdown too, is learning that in spite of ticking all those boxes, there's still going to be some dark days, whereas in the first wave. So that, so here's some of the things that I do. Um, I, I, I get up and I'll do, um, uh, uh, I'll do meditation. Uh, and then I'll do a gratitude list and the way my, I've sort of ad adapted my gratitude list to have like a yesterday, today, tomorrow feel. So yesterday I look at three things that went well for me. Uh, and then I'll say today, what are the three things that I can do, uh, like a act of kindness for someone. So either calling up a maid or, you know, donating something. So that's three for today. And then tomorrow is three things that I'm excited about for tomorrow. So that kind of keeps me in this moment of past, present and future, with all kind of positive aspects of it. Now, admittedly, the tomorrow's excitement one is really hard these days because it's genuinely tough to look at the calendar that's blank and go, what can I get excited about for tomorrow? But I think that's why the, the activity is good because it forces you to go, all right, think harder. What can be good? What can be good? I'm like, well, for example, I struggled on Sunday to think of something to be excited about for today. I'm, uh, you know, no offense. I should have put the podcast down as I'm getting excited to talk to best, but no, what I mean, <laughs> is, uh, I, I just was like, you know, really racking my brain. And then I realized, okay, if I clean up my bathroom and kitchen tonight on Sunday, that means when I wake up on Monday, I wake up to a clean bathroom and kitchen. And I thought, all right, that can be the thing to look forward to. And therefore that informed my, you know, chores for the day to make sure that I got that done so that I have something to be excited about in the morning. So it's this, it sounds so basic and it sounds so, you know, I think naff is the word, but it, <laughs> it works well for me because I was someone, at least in the last 10 years or so, I would, you know, unashamedly say that I'm very good at gratitude. Like I, it's the one thing that I think comes quicker to me than most people do. So I kind of jokingly say that it's my only true talent. Like if talent is something that you can quickly jump to uh, before anyone else can, that's what I'm able to do, you know? So I thought, okay, now that I know that I have that, how can I get better at it? So that's why I started adding these other two uh, layers to it, which is what happened good yesterday, what's something nice I can do today and what's something uh, that uh, I can look forward to tomorrow. And so... Uh, even the thing of showing some one kindness is to me, at least in itself is quite a selfish pursuit because I do it because it makes me feel good. <laughs> and I'm like, but no one's losing in that scenario, right? Someone else is receiving something hopefully positive from me. And at the same time, it's making me feel good. So ultimately, um, 
it still feels a bit selfish, but I'm like, ah, well, no one's losing out. So still there's three things that sort of, you know, I, I try and see if I can call up a friend or if there's like, um, uh, you know, I, I'll go and drop off some croissants at a friend's house who is working from home or whatever, like just something that just keeps me. And I, and I feel good after that. Mm-hmm. So those two things are the first sort of things in the morning. Then I'll do a bit of exercise. Then I'll make sure I talk to either my mom, dad, or my brother. And that's pretty much the main ones. Uh, then it kind of can vary between, uh, you know, making sure that I eat something healthy, but that's a bit wishy-washy these days because, uh, uh, people, I don't drink anymore, but people used to, you know, talk about day drinking being an increased activity these days. I don't drink anymore. So for me, it's like breakfast gelato. That's how I (laughs) dealing with some of that stuff. So, so for me, kind of, you know, those are the main big four, big five things. And what I've learned in from lockdown one is that just because I tick them all off doesn't mean I'm not going to feel like crap because mm. there were days, in fact, in the first round, after like three weeks of ticking those goals every day, I just felt like I hit a wall and I just couldn't get out of bed. And I remember being angry that I was feeling like that. And I'm like, why are you feeling shit? You've done everything. And it's like, no, you can't control this. Like, of course, you're going to be like, there's a pandemic and you're scared about not seeing your family ever again and you've lost your career. And of course, your brain's in overdrive. Like, just chill out. And I sort of try to explain it to my mom with the analogy that, you know, if you're out in the sun and the sun's belting out and you're sweating, you don't get angry at your body for sweating. You're like, oh, that's what my body does when it's, you know, feeling warm, it starts sweating. You'll be annoyed at the sun. You might be like, oh, I need to cool down. But you wouldn't self-hate your body for reacting that way. But Mm. because... I was doing the identical thing, not realizing that the pandemic is the equivalent of the sun and the reaction to the pandemic is me feeling sad. I was judging my brain and body for reacting in sadness without realizing that's just the mechanism that it has to do to deal with it is to feel sad. So shut up and just cry on the couch and enjoy it. You know? Yeah, it's it's such a weird, like for, for I guess everybody, almost everybody that's alive now, it's a really unprecedented time and we... We don't know how we're meant to feel because we nothing like this has happened at, on this scale before. And I, I have found myself feeling bad for feeling bad, mm. but it's okay. It's okay. Bad. And the other thing, mistake I was making uh, is that um, uh, I was judging my level of productivity in this situation against how productive I was pre-pandemic. And that's another unfair uh, sort of standard to set for yourself because, you know, again, the analogy I used was if you're watching a soccer match and you have certain expectation of your players to do certain things, but if suddenly the players were told, all right, here's a tennis racket uh, because you've got to defend your head because the goalie is going to start pegging golf balls at your head now. They're like, wait, what? Yeah, but we still need you to kick the same amount of goals. It's like, no, that's not fair. You changed the rules on me. (laughs) I've been been playing this game for the last 35 years and you're going to change the rules now. It's like, yeah, too late watch out here's a golf ball so yeah you would be kinder to those players <laughs> saying that you won't be able to perform the level that you were because you're still learning these new rules and halfway through suddenly another new rule comes in so of course you'll be kinder to watching them but somehow when it's yourself you never show that same level of care or kindness or compassion and one of my little tricks to do when i start self-hating like that is to say if this was happening to my best friend or my brother um and the circumstances that i'm going through is exactly what they're going through how would i want them to be treated by me and mm-hmm. then I try and mimic that because I would never say the things that I say to myself to those people I love. Sharp left turn into mm-hmm. another topic entirely. I had a really secular upbringing and I didn't really have anything to do with religion until I was in my mid-20s and I got a, my first teaching job was 
as a religious education teacher teaching primarily Christianity and Islam, but also work like other world religions in a school where 90% of the students were Muslim. Um, and this was in London. And it was a really interesting time because I went into that job and that role and that new like part of my life with a really established worldview. And, you know, I knew how I felt about the world and my place in it. But doing all this learning and uh, reading and discussion about religion had an impact on me and and I learned a lot and it was really eye-opening. You are someone who has had a really interesting life or upbringing in terms of religion. Your father, I'm hoping I get this right, your father is Buddhist, your mum is Muslim and you went to Catholic school. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering how that exposure to all of those religions at a young age um how you feel like that impacted your worldview and whether it's made you more or less religious or impacted how you engage with the world Mm. uh it is so complex uh the impact of that uh i guess it's safer to kind of start at as to where i'm at right now yeah, sure. Um, and I think what that did is by having such mixed religion. So gr- I grew up in the Muslim house because uh, dad worked overseas. So there was about 14 people in the one house and my brother and I were the only non-Muslim. So I had, yeah. was, uh, you know, uh, and then in the Catholic school, there was like 40 students per class and, you know, maybe three non of three of three to six non-Catholic. So you'd have like three Muslims and three Buddhists or whatever. So mm-hmm. no matter where I went, I was always a minority. <laughs> and, yeah, wow. Yeah. And so... For me, I would say what it had done is it made me realize that given how all three sort of faiths or philosophies felt like they were the right ones and the others were wrong, using logic, that means at a minimum, if one of them is right, at a minimum, two of them are wrong. Mm. And which means that the likelihood is that all three of them are wrong. (laughs) Yeah, wow. So I ended up becoming an atheist but I'm an atheist who learned the importance of religion and therefore I am tolerant of people's beliefs and mm-hmm. the importance that religion can play in making certain people happier and better people in society because of religion. So yeah. while I know it's not for me because I just can't will myself into believing something or, or, or accepting something without a sense of um um, faith, maybe, yeah, and I'm okay with faith as long as it didn't didn't encroach on other people's freedoms. I think yeah. that's where I start to draw the line, and I can get quite uh, um, how do you say militant? I guess in that sense, when with my atheism, when it comes to that those certain things, like people being treated as second class citizens because they're of their faith or because of their yeah. sexual orientation, then that's when I get my back up a bit. But Mm -hmm. I think having two parents who have different beliefs, potentially opposite beliefs, you know, dad believes in rebirth, mom believes in the, you know, in heaven, Uh, you know, there's a creator in mom's version in Buddhism, there's not so much of a creator, like, there's so much difference, so many differences between the two, that I feel that because I saw two people still love and respect each other's and their beliefs and do their own thing. So dad has his little prayer room. Mom's has a little prayers uh, <laughs> that if they can make it work, then it's fine. Do you know what I mean? Like I can see that when someone in the family dies, 
you know, dad thinks of it as like, oh, you know, they're going on to another life and hopefully a better life. And whereas mom is like, oh, I'll be reunited with them, you know, when I join them, you know, so they find comfort in those concepts. So what kind of asshole would I be to go, well, it's meaningless and it's just a darkness <laughs> and that's what I live in. And this is, <laughs> this is what I try to tell people. I kind of wish I wasn't an atheist. Like being an atheist sucks sometimes because, yeah, um, it, yep. you know, I, I trying to find meaning in what you believe is a meaningless existence is a pretty, pretty awful, you know, thought process sometimes. And so then I kind of get to the point where I guess, well, I just have to ascribe a certain meaning to it that works well for me yeah. in order to be a happier and kinder person. And to me, ultimately, it circles back to what we talked before, which is about how to, you know, how can I make myself happy? And luckily, because I'm not a sociopath, my happiness <laughs> is linked in being kinder to other people at times. You know what I mean? So, so I derive joy from helping people. Not always, of course, I definitely get it wrong where there'll be days where I realize, oh my God, I've just completely thought about myself this entire day and not really, you know, shown compassion to anyone else or things like that. I can get it wrong, but I can keep trying to be better. But yeah. for me, the way I kind of rationalized all of that in the end is going, look, there isn't, there is no guarantees about what happens after we go. The one guarantee we have is right now. So at a minimum, I kind of want to leave here, if I've added more good than bad, by the time I've I'm evicted from this share house of the of the world, uh, then I've done something that was positive, and I kind of justify, you know, me taking up oxygen because of that. Yeah, because it's I, I do you know there's a song called uh, "Let the Mystery Be." Uh, I forget who sings it, but it's the theme song from the TV show Leftovers. And okay. it essentially, essentially deals with the idea that some people believe this, some people believe that. Uh, I'm just going to let the mystery be because I, you know, I believe in love. And I just focus on like that's what the the singer says, and yeah. and I, that really resonates with me because it's too complex to to try and speculate. But mm. it's nothing wrong with speculating if it means you can get up in the morning and you know be a better parent, be a better employee, better better sibling, you know, person in community. Sure, if that's what you do. But if your you know your your idea of what happens afterwards is so strong that you're willing to cause harm to someone else because of that then that's the, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I tap out and I can get a bit um, annoyed and well not annoyed very much angry so yeah. it's like I'd you know I think it's is it Voltaire who said something uh, I may not agree with you but I will you know fight for your right to defend to the death def your right yeah, to believe yeah. it's yeah. kind of kind of like that for me it's like I, yeah. I definitely don't believe it but the caveat being as long as it doesn't hurt other people mm. yeah I feel the same way and the experiences I've had with religion or in sort of engaging with religion haven't changed my personal view. It's just made me more aware of what other people believe and understand the importance of religion and a lot of, you know, cultural stuff and tradition in other people's lives. I didn't really know anything about Ramadan yeah. or yeah. or... Ramadan's one of my favorite times of the year because as a non-Muslim, I got to have like five meals a day because they'd wake up before like 4.35 a.m. to prep themselves for the day of fasting. Yeah. And I would get up and eat with them, but then go to school, <laughs> have breakfast, lunch, dinner, break fast with them. It was great. I'd stack on heaps of weight, but 
and um, and also there's again the community aspect of it. Like in that big family, you know, everyone would get together at the dinner table to break fast at the same time, mm. and it was. You know, uh, I, I can get teary just thinking about it right now, how much it meant to me to be able to sit at the table and try all this delicious food. And which, to be honest, is something I'm working with my therapist to try and undo because there's so much connection between food and love that I'm yeah. trying that that as soon as I feel any sense of loneliness or sadness that I just feel that if I have this fried chicken, I will feel <laughs> more c- protected by my grandma. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really interesting point like the food and love and care and family and it's I feel like back to the ISO topic that would make you know this time where you're alone and you're without your family and like I, I've been finding myself turning to comforts that aren't necessarily that healthy for me because I, I mean I'm living with my family at the moment but I'm you know down in the dumps and it's like oh do I really need to eat another bag of Doritos or mm. whatever yeah. Well, the way I rationalized it is with the help of my therapist is that it's uh, ultimately comes down to what's the kindest thing you can do for yourself. So mm. the reason we have compulsive, uh, well, I'll put, speak for myself at least that yeah. way. No, I'm not speculating, but uh, the reason I have compulsive behaviors like, uh, you know, or drinking too much, um, being lazy and, you know, overeating is because as my therapist said, it's because they work. It's because yeah. in that moment, you do feel a comfort, you do feel a numbness, you do get to breathe easier for a little bit, because you've given yourself in a world that's increasingly losing control of your grasp of what you can, uh, your place in it, that being in control of this behavior is still something that gives you joy. That's why you go towards it, because if it didn't do the job, then you wouldn't keep doing it, right? Yep. So, so firstly, recognize why you do it. You don't do it because you're, I, I don't do it because I'm weak. I'm because I'm, 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 I have bad willpower, anything like that. It's because it works and it has mm. worked for me for 35 years. So why would I stop now? That's the first thing. The second thing to realize that, yeah, in that moment, maybe ice cream at 2 a.m. is the kind thing to do because I'm lying in bed, genuinely afraid that, uh, the last time I saw mom and dad was the last time I hugged them, you know, genuinely afraid that I might not see my niece till she's, you know, five, six years old, who knows? Like those fears are so difficult for, for, you know, the most positive person, let alone someone like me who, you know, is someone who doesn't think that any of this has meaning, you know? Yeah. Like, so when you're having that existential crisis, yeah, the kind thing to do is to maybe have a tub of ice cream because you just get to sleep a bit better that in that moment or whatever. But if that behavior kept going for like, you know, seven days a week, 10 days a week or whatever, uh, you know, in a row, then in that moment, the kind thing to do would be to try and slow it down. Do you know what I mean? So it's like at times the kind thing for me would be to go into a bag of chips. But if I did that every day uh, for a month, then the kind thing to do would be to come a hold back because you know that yeah, d- down the track, this is going to cause more adverse effect than positive. But so it's never like the one thing for me. It's just a case of going, what's the kindest thing I can do to myself right now? So when I have my food cravings, which are monstrous right now <laughs> in this situation, <laughs> I try to ask myself such an annoyingly basic question, which is, do I really want these chips or do I just need a hug right now? And, you know, sometimes it's the chips and I'll go with the chips, but sometimes (laughs) it is a hug and, uh, you know, it's like, all right, well, let's not necessarily give into it. How about we call up a friend? How about we, uh, you know, look through some photos of my niece? How about I, you know, something that I know will give me that sense of connection. That is what I'm truly wanting. 
because way back before I can even remember, somewhere the idea of if I ate a lot, that I'll get a pat on the back and my grandma will smile at me for saying, good boy, you've, you've finished two of, me, you know, two of my cooking. And that's what, unfortunately, the wiring that's in my brain is saying, if you do that, then you'll get protected by your, your not tribe. But yeah. really, I can find other ways of protecting it now because it's just like, okay, I, I can, you know, call my brother or something like that. Yeah. And, and just realizing that just like, just like food, shelter, um, you know, um, warmth, it's all uh, be feeling like you belong is another big part of our basic needs. And when you're in a situation like where I am, where like, you know, you're living alone away from three of the closest people in your life, you know, that sense of belonging is needed. And it shows up in frame in times of through the food or sometimes through validation on social media. Like, mm-hmm. so I'm aware of it. And sometimes I give more into it than I want to. But in that moment, I go, well, that's, that's fine. I see why you're doing this. Go for it. If you need to, you know, if you need to jump on Tinder and feel validated, go for it. <laughs> What is the best gig you've ever done? Uh, it, it would have to be the in November 2017, the first time my mum and dad got to see me headline. So it was at the Comics Lounge in North Melbourne. And mm-hmm. the Comics Lounge is like a 400 seat or something like that, 500 sometimes. Is that uh, where you did? The, I saw you at the Bushfire Relief. Yeah, yeah, at that, the start yeah, of the year. Was. Yeah, 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 exactly. And uh, that one uh, is happens to be the venue that I did my first ever gig at. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, twenty first of the, uh, September two thousand and ten was my first ever gig, and it was in front of twenty people that night because yeah. it was their uh, new comedians night. And back then, it, there was not enough kind of traction about the new comedians. Uh, that mm-hmm. you know they've done really well. These you know pre pandemic, they were getting about two three hundred people per day, even for the new comedians night. But back when I did it, it was only twenty people in the crowd. <laughs> And, you know, uh, and I bombed. And so for me, uh, you know, to fast forward seven years later and being the headliner of that very club uh, Mm. and then having mum and dad see that happen. And uh, I think, no, because they were in the in the crowd and the the, the MC and the supporting actor, two of the strongest performers uh, of, you know, that's in the scene, a guy called Mike Goldstein and a guy called Jacques Barrett. And they were crushing. And I was like, oh, my God, they're going to like, I'm going to look like the worst on ground. So I came <laughs> out because mom and dad were in there and I knew I couldn't, uh, you know, I needed to really step it up. It was one of my best performances, but it was more about seeing their faces afterwards because so much so that my mom, who has a heart condition, mom had to be taken home because she started getting too <laughs> excited. Uh-huh. By it all, but it in fact there's a photo that I have on my uh, phone as my wallpaper is them, oh. uh, uh, standing, and I like, and there's my brother uh, and me outside my uh, show in Soho, London. That was the first time. Oh I wow! Saw so I have that on my phone wallpaper because, believe it or not, to me that November 2017 gig was the peak of my career, and, and that's pre that's pre Logie. That's yeah, that's yeah, that's pre a lot of things that most people would consider yeah. the peak. But for me, that is my mental peak because I knew when I started doing comedy that I was going to um, I was going to do it forever. Like I didn't care how shit I was. It just made me so happy that I was like, it doesn't matter whether this, you know, when it works out, I'm just going to keep going until it does or I die. One of the two things are going to happen. And so I, because I was so shit though, I didn't think it was going <laughs> to happen for a while. 
So yeah. I kind of, you know, not in a mob, I mean, fairly morbid, I suppose, is that I never really thought that my parents would be alive to see it come, you know, me being full-time headliner. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the fact that that happened, they both saw it and it went well. To me, it was like, oh, this is all I've ever wanted from this thing. I wanted to live off it, pay rent and buy groceries with being a comedian. And my parents see, you know, then they got to see it too. So what more can I ever ask for? So weirdly, I drew a line in the sand at that point because I went, all right, well, anything from this point onwards is just bonus. It's just the victory lap and treat it as such. Now, that doesn't mean I don't work hard. In fact, I would yeah. say I work harder because now I'm coming at it from a lot more of a fun perspective going, how cool is it that my victory lap includes things like, you know, winning a Logie or, you know, uh, filming my stand-up special for, for Amazon. Like those things are huge, huge, huge things. But they were so far removed from anything I ever dreamed of that I don't hold as big an attachment to that idea as the idea of my parents seeing it happen. So for me, yeah. I could I could be washed up and everything could just go south from now onwards and it would hurt, it would suck and it would, you know, cause a lot of tears, but I still will ha always have that memory of them seeing me, you know, headline and dare I say smash it. <laughs> yeah. <That's laughs> so awesome. so that's that's my best gig. Worst gig uh has to go to 2016 a year before that in Gold Coast at a place called Southport Sharks where I uh, uh had to do 40 minutes. Uh, Southport Sharks is a footy club. It's not the footy yeah. club themselves. They just have a venue and it was like, you know, uh betting betting tables at the uh, you know, screens at the back, a TAV, mm. um a 40th birthday happening in the corner. It was a mess. <laughs> and I had to do 40 minutes and 3 minutes into my sets uh, a guy in the front in a Broncos top goes, piece off stage, you curry munching prick. So oh, God. Yeah, that has potentially got to be the worst. Uh, but uh, funny how life is, like as awful as that gig is and stands as my, you know, worst ever gig. Uh, it's the only gig I've got a standing ovation for. <laughs> because I dealt with that heckler for so long, for 40 minutes, and eventually until him and his, all his mates left, that it was only like left with like six people in the crowd because I just kept putting out fires. And then the only six people that left stood up and clapped for me because I survived the 40 minutes. Wow. <laughs> and then I walked backstage, and I swear to you, best, like I fell on the ground convulsing from fear because I'd been holding that panic of being punched in the head, the fear of racism, all of that held for 40 minutes that, because I tried to look confident. I tried to look like I know what I'm doing. But as soon as the curtains were uh, closed, I was just on the floor shivering in a mess. Like I was on my knees, crouching, shivering. It was, uh, it, it has to be the worst. <laughs> Traumatic. Oh my God. All right. What about, you don't need to tell me about your best because that's not interesting. What's mm. the worst state you've ever been on? Worst date oh i'm very uncomfortable giving specifics uh you know don't be too specific yeah 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 i always like to think if anyone's listened to this and wants to date me will feel comfortable <laughs> knowing that i won't talk about them uh, uh but i can say this i suppose it was um it was i went to on a date to, with someone uh to a cafe it was like 3 p.m in the arvo so it was not very crowded it was a big cafe and um they, uh, I said, oh, what do you want? I'll go get the coffee. I go to get the coffee. I come back. Uh, and there's a dude sort of in this really long table was kind of like hovering behind her and, you know, was mucking around with the, with the laptop wire and stuff. And then kind of sat next. To I'm like, what's going on? He's like, he's like, no, it's all right. I just need to charge. I'm like, oh man, if you need the table, we can move. That's fine. He's like, he's like, no, 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 it's fine. And I was like, no, that's cool. And I kind of took the coffees and I we moved to another table because there was so many, so much space. And then 
when we sat down, I was like, oh, that was a bit weird. What was that about? And she's like, yeah, I know. He uh, he wanted to charge his laptop and I just didn't feel like moving. And I went, what? <laughs> I was like, but that was the only power socket in the whole cafe. Oh, that was the most convenient. It, you know, she's like, yeah, I just, you know, I just didn't feel like moving. And I went, mm. oh my God, wow. And in that moment, it's amazing how attraction uh, shifted from me being physically attracted to it initially. And then suddenly just that image of her not showing the simplest bit of compassion or simplest bit of, uh, you know, something didn't take, it wasn't going to take effort to be nice to that person. Yeah. And she didn't do that. So I was just like, bang, I'm out. And it was just very much just me just trying to, you know, see the hour through rather than leaving rudely in that moment. I still, because again, you know, I'm still a guy and I'm like, man, she is hot. Let's see if there's something. (laughs) Uh, No, there wasn't. So I just went, nah, uh, that's probably that, that potentially counts as one of those. I came here uh, for university to get a degree in accounting because, you know, some stereotypes are true. And, um, and the plan was quite simple. All I had to do, like, my parents spent a fortune on me and all I had to do was get the degree, go back to Sri Lanka, get a job, get married, have kids, and then die. Simple. <laughs> but things were not- You moved here when you were 19. You're mm-hmm. in your 30s now. Mm-hmm. You've obviously decided you like Australia and you want to stay. What is your favourite thing about living in Australia? That is a, such a good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I had to nut it down, I think ultimately it is about what Australia uh, represents to me. It represents my country. <laughs> like it, for me, it feels mine. Like I yep. feel like I came here on my own. I know my, like my dad and mom supported me financially, emotionally. Once I got here, I had all my, fr- you know, so many things that from Sri Lanka, like my dad's mate is the one who picked me up from the airport. And mom's, you know, old teacher mate's son is the one who has couch I crashed on in the first couple of days. So I'm not like, you know, I made it on my own. I'm not saying that at all. I couldn't have done any of this without the support and love of my parents and my family. But having said that, everything that I have here right now from my friendship group to my career is stuff that I chased and I, you know, achieved. So I feel like Australia reminds me of what I am capable of doing if I put my mind to it. And there's a few things in life like that, that I try and remind myself, why do I like this thing so much? Why do I like running? It's because, you know, I was 125 kilos at the start of 2018. And then me just saying, I'm going to walk for 10 minutes a day represented me saying, I'm not going to be this version of myself. I always told myself I was someone who doesn't exercise, you know? things like that. It's just about what it represents. So to me, I think Australia represents, um, you know, my second half of my life that uh, I lived more on my terms than, yeah. uh, than, uh, than anywhere else. Duke, thank you so much for talking to Radioactive Cockroach today. Um, if, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If any of our listeners are wanting to see more of you, they can find your comedy special mm-hmm. on Amazon. Yeah, it's on Um, Amazon Prime. It's called Bundle of Joy. uh, And uh, it's pretty much uh, the best of uh, my stand-up. It's probably the best version of my hour that has ever, you know, been put together. So Mm -hmm. it's it's a really good starting point if people want to see what my stand-up's like. Uh, But also, if you don't have that, it's an audio version of it's on Audible. 
Uh, oh, so great. you can you can get it from there. Uh, otherwise, you know, uh, my podcast is called Fitbit Pod, and it's about where me and my friend, who were about 125 kilos each at the start of 2018, decided to have a bet to see which of us can get under 100 kilos, and the winner gets a thousand dollars. Last year, I lost a fair bit of weight. Right at this point, I've lost a total of about 35 kilos, which is a thank. No, no, thank you, but don't do that. No, 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 no. Thank you, thank you, thank you, but don't do that because I appreciate it. But at the same time, while 35 kilos is a lot, I mean, I put it there. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I don't think I should be praised for losing something I probably should have never had in the first place. You know? So that podcast covers that particular part of the bet and then since then we've had different people in uh, you know of note in the media come and talk about their own kind of particular you know relationship with food health alcohol drugs um you know eating disorders you, you name it we've 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 you know we had someone talk about uh cosmetic surgery and why they find that empowering and why you know the 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 sort of shattering a bit of the notion that you know uh, that cosmetic surgery is this evil corporation thing, you know? Mm. So we really try and tap into different uh, areas we can, but ultimately it's a lot of uh, filthy dick jokes as well. So, <laughs> you know, so. no, it's, it's a great, I, like, I, I'll be honest, I only discovered it uh, fairly recently in preparation uh -huh. to speak to you, but, but I've listened to a lot of it and it's a great, it's really interesting. And I had thought initially, I was like, oh, this is just going to make me feel really bad about not exercising or not being healthy or whatever, but it's really fascinating. And I really love, I've listened to, you know, Dave O'Neill and Will Anderson and Peter Hellier. And it's, I think it's so great to hear men talking about how they feel about their bodies and about their mental health. And I really wanted to thank you for putting that out there because I think it's oh. really Thank you so much for saying that. You're most welcome. And thank you. I mean, it's one of the things that keeps the me and my podcast partner, Ben Lomas, going is because of the amount of messages we get from people that range from, hey, thanks for mentioning this. I've, I've started seeing a therapist because, you know, uh, someone sent me a message saying that they started seeing a therapist because they saw my stand up the other day. And because uh, I talked about how helpful it's been. Or we had someone message us saying that they've lost 50 kilos since they started listening wow. to the podcast. So I think the reason we don't have a big following, but we have a very passionate following because I yeah. think we've never strayed away from being honest about where mm. we're at. So early on, there are certain things that views on the diet culture that I, I disagree with myself now, like two yeah. years later. And, and, you know, I'm, it, it's unfortunate, that, but I don't want to retrospectively edit the things I said because that's how I felt at the time, you know. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I think hearing people get that benefit and realizing, like, you know, it's, we use such cliched words like journey and, and, and things like that. But it's true because everyone's kind of on their own thing. Like my biggest, me and Ben, we kind of started at the same point. But, you know my biggest struggle at the moment is solitude and his biggest struggle is he doesn't have time to himself. Like, you know, we literally are on our own journey. So I think what listeners seem to gravitate towards is that it doesn't matter what your thing is, whether it's running, whether it's, you know, keto, intermittent fasting, veganism, whatever it is, if it works for you, have fun with it. Like yeah. that literally is it. So it's like, it's hopefully not meant to make people feel bad about <laughs> where their bodies are or anything like that, but just learning that, all these people that you thought had their shit together, like Will Anderson talking about yeah. a, uh, you know, essentially a form of body dysmorphia, you know, yeah. or we had the cricket, uh, former English cricket captain, uh, Andrew Flintoff. Uh, mm -hmm. He talked about when he was playing cricket, uh, he suffered from bulimia and, you know, he's since spoken about it publicly, but 
to hear an elite athlete, a man, talk about having, uh, uh, you know, body issues and how much he wanted six-pack abs and he worked so hard to get it and then was more depressed than he's ever been because he'd been depriving his body of, you know, nourishment just because he can look this particular, you know, figure that he thought. Like, to me, getting just hearing that, I, the type of podcast I wish I heard when I was going through my weight struggles, you know, yeah. and I'm still going through my weight struggles. You know what I mean? Like I've mentioned about the ice cream. So mm. yeah, I'm really glad that people who do listen to it really, really do gravitate to it. And hopefully people realize, yes, ultimately it is a comedy podcast and we're very silly, but there, the way I look at it is like, you show up for the comedy, you stick around for a little bit of insight, you know? Yeah. And, and the insight could be wrong as well. That's the other thing that I always keep reminding my listeners is that, Remember, we're not experts. We're literally just two blokes having a crack at something uh, here and there. And sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I've noticed that my, my, you know, my gender pronouns are a bit all over the shop sometimes, you know, or sometimes I notice my own sexism creeping, my own homophobia. Like, I'm like, I know, I know, I know I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. I, I'm trying to be better. <laughs> but they're just, you know, please go in with an open mind, uh, especially around diet culture and bodies, because I'm still figuring it out. I still yeah. don't know how to be happy about my body and I've lost 40 kilos. Like you'd think that I should be at this point going, well done, Dale, you're so happy. But no, I look in the mirror going, ugh. And I'm like, fuck, where is that from? <laughs> no, it's, it's, a really, it's a really good podcast. I'm thank really you. Thank it. you, Bess. I'm really glad you like it. Dale, thank you so much. This has been really great. I really oh, appreciate my pleasure. your time. Thank you so much for having me.